This is Dan Ozzie, author of the best-selling, beloved, perfect rock book sellout, and you are listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new scene. This is Keith and Tommy, and we are back with a brand new episode. And tonight on the show, Andrew Lowe, you know him from the Jazz June, you know him from his new band, Post Skeleton, you know it all. And we are going to talk to him tonight. And I'm very excited about it, Tommy. The Jazz June are like classic. Classic. And I've been catching up on Andrew's new band, Post Skeleton. I'm really digging them. I'm looking forward to hearing the new single, which should be coming out this week. Hmm? Hmm? I, I love... This is my thing. Uh, I've loved Jazz June for... Since I was 15 years old. Like, uh, yeah. this has been one of those bands that... And it even... Actually, I think it got mentioned on the Anthony episode. Everything we kind of did in terms of, like, thinking about the way to write harmonies we stole directly from them a hundred percent oh really oh yeah like the record that we both like really got influenced by was they love those who make the music and it came out on workshop in like 96 or 97 and we went nuts for it because it was like the correct mix to at least us at the time of heavy kind of like rock styling stuff but also that kind of braid um, promise ring kind of emo. But what they did a lot of was these high picking parts. So it was a lot of like hammer on and pull offs. And we constantly did that. And the audience of one song that people constantly will go back to often is say ocean. And that 100% is a jazz tune ripoff. <laughs> well, I think Andrew will be happy to hear that. <laughs> I wasn't as familiar with them back in the day. The Medicine is the one I've heard, and I caught up on them. The Medicine, I love. I really like the Reunion LP they did in 2014 after the earthquake. Great band. I'm really looking forward to talking to Andrew. Well, this is the other thing. So I have a weird connection to this band in that they went to Kutztown with my sister. Wait, what do you mean with your sister? So... I don't know if it exactly is, I think one of the former members of Jazz June was friendly with my sister. So my sister went to Kutztown in 1995, and she, I I think I've told the story on the show, but she took me to a hardcore show um, with a band uh, called Atari, not Atari Teenage Riot, not the Ataris, just X Atari X. And two of the brothers that were in this band were Brett Bartow and Nate Bartow. I believe Nate was in Jazz June for a period of time. Or one of their people that was in Atari was also in Jazz June. There was some type of crossover between the two bands. And that was huge for me because when Anthony and I, well, we'll get into this story during the interview, but when Anthony and I booked them, uh, we were like 15, 16 years old. We didn't know we had to pay them. Okay. Now, folks, remember to support us, the new scene. We need Apple Podcast and Spotify reviews. 
And the reviews are coming in. Tommy, we are up to 66 Apple Podcast reviews. And we've got a couple new ones. We'll read those in segment three. And we are up to 52 Spotify reviews. We want to get up to 100 for both. So I'm going to keep asking until you get us there. Thank you, everybody who is submitting reviews. Keep them coming. And another reminder, we've got the new scene, Life is Music is Life, long sleeve shirt, available at the Death Wish Inc. store. Head to the Death Wish Inc. store. Search the new scene. The shirt will pop right up. Buy it. Wear it. Take a picture of yourself in it and send it to us. We'll post it on our Instagram story. You want it. You need it. You want it. What do you think, Tommy? Shout out to Mike Shaw for buying it on like the first day it was available. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Thank you, Mike. He is a he is a great supporter of the show. Now, some iodine recordings news. Now, folks, I hope you know by now our podcast is sponsored by Iodine Recordings. And Tommy, they've got a new band, a new release coming out. The band is Attempt Survivors. This is members of Helmet and Seisha. It's very good post-hardcore style jams. They've got a new single, which has premiered over at New Noise Magazine. Go and check it out. You want to hear this? It's a great band. And Tommy, when I posted about them, they responded and said they are fans of our podcast. So you what? know that. Yeah, you know they've got to be cool. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I loved Helmet and Seisha going, growing up. So that's huge. So welcome attempt survivors to the Iodine Recordings family. It is great to be here with you and we're looking forward to hearing more so yeah folks check out the song at new noise magazine it's great now folks you really should check out north end a post-rock band out of philadelphia you may be familiar with them they did a split with our friends in signal hill which came out i think last year two years ago somewhere around then wow i have really been craving new good post-rock i haven't been keeping up with it and this ep they have an ep coming out it's called Halted. It comes out March 31st. I got to hear in advance of the whole thing. Well, this is really, really good stuff. I, I, would, I would go as far as to say this may be my favorite post-rock release of 2022. It's like mathy, jammy, slightly heavy, good post-rock. Can't recommend it enough. Check out North End. The first thing I said to you after you sent it to me was, this is the f my favorite thing you've sent me in a very long time. It's amazing. And on top of that, it imagine like when I heard it, I was like, this is when I make music by myself. This is what I hope it ends up sounding like. Like th it's that type of like, I felt a very personal connection to it. Yeah. As soon as I heard this, Tommy, I was like, Tommy is going to love this. This, this just has that very specific Tommy sound where I know he's going to absolutely love it. They do. It's like uh, they have the same type of sensibilities in terms of like they understand guitar work as almost like the metallic kind of idea of like we need to harmonize this section because this is the part where it leads into the, the next part where it gets heavier. Uh, but they do a great job of doing that without distortion or minimal distortion. Let's put it that way. Yeah, there's slightly heavier parts, but it's not too much. It's very pleasant, very awesome music. So check out halted the new ep which comes out march 31st okay so that's it for this segment check back in with us it's segment three but right now we are going to speak to andrew lowe enjoy when i woke up was surprised to see you still here 
right, folks, we're here now with Andrew Lowe. Andrew, welcome to the show. Oh, man. Thanks so much. I've been looking forward to this. So, um, yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's great to have you here. You know, we're excited to talk about the Jazz June. We're excited to talk about your new band, Post Skeleton. But first, I am excited to hear, Andrew, how are you doing today? Today? You know what? I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, so I I knew you were going to ask me this question. And um, (laughs) (laughs) I would say... Today, I feel like I'm levitating above my life. Like, I'm I'm not really... It's just one of those days of, like, reflection, you know what I mean? Where you're kind of looking down on your, on your life and everything and really doing a lot of contemplating. Not quite an existential tailspin, because it's not a bad thing. But, um, yeah, levitating over myself and looking down and, uh, you know, just scoping things out. I love that. I do that a lot. But what kicked this off, Andrew? Anything in particular, or is it just one of those days? Yeah, just one of those days. Um, yeah, nothing in particular, really. Just um, just general life stuff. I mean, I've got two little kids, so there's always something something on the go with them. Um, but yeah, just uh, works busy, that kind of thing. And um, but yeah, generally, generally things are good. How old are your kids? Uh, seven and four. Oh man, so you're busy all the time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Andrew, I have I have twin eight year olds and a two year old. So oh, twins. <laughs> Fuck. Yeah, yeah, man. I feel yeah. for you. Um double the double the fun, I guess, but also double the work. And you've got a younger oh. one too? Yeah. So we have twin eight year olds and a two year old, and uh everybody's awesome. However, it is chaos here all the time. <laughs> yeah. You know what? One of my favorite episodes of yours is the one with your wife or partner um oh that was so good that was so good and you know what like because i went to i mean we'll talk about this obviously but i went to kutztown and i've been around pennsylvania and like your you and her accent is such a like sweet reminder <laughs> of like kutztown and like you know bam margera and just like that whole sort of like i don't know not that you sound like him but it's like it's taking like little it's like taking little sips of Nice red wine when I hear Pennsylvania accents like that. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's a nice gulp of nostalgia, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Kelly is going to be so happy to hear that because we were just all together at a function. <laughs> yes. And we would, you know, we're talking about the podcast with people. And she was like, I was on it. I was on it. And I was, she's like, my episode was one of the best. And I'm like, yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. love that. And of course, when, you know, after, you know, I absolutely loved Mayor of East Town. Um, so yeah, just like that whole sort of part of the world I have a lot of love for. Yeah. And I actually don't hear my accent until I listen to the show and then I'll play it in the car. Like, you know, cause it comes up on like Spotify or something and I'll listen to it and I'll go, Oh my God, that's what I sound like. Oh boy. I was going to say in the car, are you listening to your F- AM FM radio? No, <laughs> my radio <laughs> are you going home or are you going home home i was gonna say it's the same way i listen at home which is on (laughs) i listen on my phone (laughs) and it's it's really hilarious though because like keith and i started this whole thing talking about like we have these things that we say when we talk to each other like yo remember that dude Everybody else is like, do you mean, do you mean remember that person? I'm like, yeah, that's what I said. And they're like, no, you said, 
remember that dude? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, yeah. Remember them guys? Remember them guys that uh that used to come to the con? You're like, oh, Jesus, that is really. We don't speak the language as much as we chew it up and spit it out. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm from New Jersey, so I can't really talk. I mean, we're the, that's pretty much the worst kind of accent you can have. So, no, I, I love it. But you know what, too? I know you're a skateboarder. Uh, I don't know how long you've been skating for, but I was, like, texting my friends from Atari being like, what was that place we used to go up to that Kerry Getz used to skate? I need to talk to oh these guys God. about it. Penn Skate and, like, uh, all the other places, random places around Pennsylvania. Yeah, so it's actually funny. I have uh, – do you remember the Bartow brothers from Emmaus? Dude. Uh Brett I was in and- a band with Brett and, um, yeah, with Brett. We were in a band, the straight edge hardcore band called Atari. Okay. So <laughs> tell them, Tommy. <laughs> yeah. So that was the first. So my sister went to Kutztown and my mother in a, uh, stroke of genius allowed me to go and visit my sister. Cause I missed her so bad, uh, to go visit her up in Kutztown and, my sister's idea of taking care of me was I'm going to take you to a hardcore show. So I got to see Atari <laughs> in Kutztown no when I was in like, I, I think I was 11 or 12. Yeah. Oh, amazing. Where was it? Do you remember? Was it in a, a house show or? No, it was at like a, looked like kind of like a youth center kind of place. Oh, you know, I think I remember that. Cause I think jazz June might've played as well. Maybe. Because I remember we used to do double bills back to back and that killed me because like I'd be singing and playing guitar in the jazz dude and then I'd have to do these like high kicks and jump around and, <laughs> you know, uh, sort of Atari crap. You know, we me, it's funny because me and Brian um, from the jazz dude are both in Atari and, and we tried to quit so many times, but they wouldn't let us. I'm glad we they didn't, but <laughs> we were just too cool for a while. You know what I mean? I have it when when this is over. I have a picture upstairs of it. It's, it might be Brian or it might be Brett. Um, it's a handrail in Kutztown, and on the back it says uh, Brett or Brian, and I remember it says Jackass to handrail, and it's someone doing a <laughs> frontside nose slide on like a. I mean, this rail is short. It's like five stairs or four stairs. Like it's really small. But I, yeah, I, yeah. Kept, I, I, my sister had it. My, you know, my sister had a, a photography class, took a picture of it, and printed it out for me. And I had it from the time I was, you know, twelve or thirteen up until I, I still have it to today. And I'm, you know, I'll be forty next month. Like it was just one of those things nice. that kind of uh, it, it, it made sense to me as like skateboarding hardcore all of this stuff was kind of intertwined of like this is our thing like this is fun and it's all about just you know being friends with other people tommy that atari show was that your first like punk hardcore show yeah 100 percent. so that's a pretty crazy time is a flat circle thing that you saw that show and now we're here with andrew talking to him don't you think oh yeah 100 it, it's it's very i always think about this like that time in my life was very influential in the music I chose to listen to. And more importantly, um, the things I chose to keep that were important to me, the friends I had, the, the things that I kept in terms of connection wise. And I think a lot of the things that I thought were important at that time are things that I still look back on as like, this makes sense to me now. Like this is an important thing and there's a reason it stayed with me for this long. 
Yeah, well, basically, you have me to thank for your whole life, basically, is what you're saying there. <laughs> well, um, you, know, you know, it's and, actually, uh, <laughs> it's really funny, Andrew, I was actually just bringing this up. So it, it, Keith and I were talking off the air before we started this segment. Anthony from Circa Survive uh, and I booked you. Uh, we booked Jazz June to play a show in the Trihampton YMCA in Southampton, uh, just like, a you know, 20 minutes north of Philly. And we booked you guys and we were like, this is great. We're going to, you know, we have all these great bands. And then you guys were like, yo, uh, how do we get paid? And Anthony and I kind of looked at each other like, oh, we got to go to the door. We got to go to the find the door person. And what we found out was they took 100% of the door. <laughs> so <laughs> Anthony, and oh, I, <laughs> Anthony and I scraped up all the money we had together <laughs> and paid you guys with like money that we had like in our car. Like I had like a $20 bill in oh, my man. visor of like, I'm like, Oh my God, we got to pay them. Like it was so bad. Like we can't, but we can't not like, well, cause you guys had traveled so far and it was like, it was such a pain in the ass. Like, and you guys, there was some kind of like, uh, you were supposed to go on at a certain time and then another band had gotten put on and it, that was Anthony's fault. But it was like, we have to pay these dudes. Like they traveled forever to get here. And on top of that, like, uh, they were awesome. The other thing is, is we stole your sound for a long time. <laughs> so <laughs> there was a, a good chunk of time when we were writing anything and it was like, okay, so what's the other part that we're going to write for this? So like, we would write like the, like whatever the rhythm section was. And then our big idea was like, we would go back to like when in Rome, like that was our like thing we would be like okay so what's the high section like what's the part where it's like the hammer on pull off part that <laughs> kind of ties it all together and that's how we wrote songs like we would write the the regular part and go okay so what's what's the other part that kind of like ties these two sections together and we kept going back to what you guys had written and yeah so that's what we did for a long time <laughs> let's break this down a bit andrew do you remember that show and tommy not paying you no, I don't. And I feel so bad that you went to your car and, and picked up 20 bucks or whatever. Like, cause, you know, obviously we didn't have a lot of money, but, um, you know, I, I feel, I feel sad that, uh, you had to pay us out of, out of your allowance money or whatever. But, um, I appreciate it though. I'm sure it probably helped us get home. <laughs> it was definitely one of those things that like, and you guys played for so long. You played like an over an hour and it was just like, oh my God, these, like these dudes traveled, like we have to pay them. Like, so we just, we scraped money together. So <laughs> I appreciate you. I really appreciate you doing that because nobody else, we, we contacted <laughs> like, we contacted like 10 other bands and nobody else showed up and you guys did. And we we're like, yes, <laughs> they're here. <laughs> oh wait, they want money. Oh shit. <laughs> Andrew, how does it feel to you that a young Anthony Green and Tommy were ripping off your band, The Jazz June, for Audience of One so many years ago? Well, I definitely ripped off like so many bands. I mean, it's funny because now when I listen back to like certain uh, Jawbox albums and I'm like, God, I really just ripped off that entire sort of like song piece by piece. So I can't uh, I can't really fault you guys, but it's flattering. Um and uh yeah i mean it was just it was such a cool moment in time though for for music you know cuz with the jazz june we were like ex hardcore dudes who started to you know get into jazz and rock and roll and all sorts of indie rock and everything else so um yeah everyone was kind of ripping each other off i guess and ripping off different styles from different places so i i don't hold it against you 
Yeah, I mean, I still do it even now when I write. But Andrew, take us back a little bit. Tell us about discovering the scene and some of your trajectory. It sounds like you started off in hardcore, yes? Yeah, so um, I started off as like a New Jersey skate rat going to like different hardcore shows when I was probably from the age of like 15. I had some older friends who had cars and stuff, so that was cool. We'd get up and go to like Middlesex County College and John Hiltz's house and um, and also like Josh Grabell's house. I don't know if, if you guys know about this, but um, he was the guy who ran Trustkill Records um, and he, he had like a, a house sort of in our town where his parents, he, he was like, a, it wasn't even like that big. He had this basement where his parents just like let him have these big house shows, but his house shows were like strife with earth crisis and mouthpiece and, you know, like all these insane bills, like these big, huge touring bills would come through and play his basement. So, um, yeah, I met, I met those guys and also, uh, Carl Severson who did, Ferret Records, and he was in Nora. Those guys were kind of like around, sort of like skateboarding days. And uh, yeah, I just got to like go to different shows at their house. Um, and then yeah, John Hiltz, he he lived up up near like Montclair, and he he would have more of like the sort of Gern Blanston bands, like Native Nod and 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 Weston and stuff. So you know, there seemed to be something going on, like almost I don't know every month or maybe sometimes more. So, uh, like I said, cause my friends had a car too, we would, uh, we would, you know, we would even drive to like DC to see Fugazi and then drive home again, you know, just like crazy stuff when you're sort of like 17 and just have like nothing else to do. So, um, yeah, I kind of, um, got into really into straight edge hardcore. I'd be like Xing up at shows and everything. And then I got to Kutztown and like my first day I was wearing a falling forward shirt and, uh, like the guys we were talking about in Atari and Nate and uh, Brett and Chris and some of the other guys were walking by and uh, they kind of were like, Oh, you know, falling forward short. And then I went to the cafeteria and they were all there. And one of the guys came up and started talking to me. And uh, from then, like I kind of got introduced to Atari and some of like the hardcore kids at, um, cause Atari was going like before I joined it, some of the hardcore kids at the school and uh, eventually joined the band and started to play with them. And then, um, yeah, just, I mean, it's it's such a cool school because there was no fraternities or sororities and most of the kids were art students. So everyone's just kind of chilled out or there's like a lot of hippies who, but everyone's just kind of friends. Didn't, you know, there wasn't like, uh, you know, like skaters versus the hippies or anything, which was actually like in my high school. But um, yeah, getting to Kutztown was really cool because everyone was really cool and friendly and they were just kind of into the same kind of stuff as me, hardcore and skateboarding. And also I'd go snowboarding like on the weekends. And then at one point I got um, like a, a, a yearly pass and I scheduled all my classes so that I didn't have classes on Tuesdays and Thursdays just so I could go snowboarding. So thanks mom <laughs> and dad for paying all that money for my education. <laughs> and uh <laughs> Yeah. So at any rate, then at some point, I think my second year, um, I basically met all the guys in the jazz June. Uh, one of them just called me and was like, Hey, let's, let's get together and play. And yeah, we started, started playing and started the band. And, uh, it was funny though, because the first show we ever played, we were only practicing maybe a couple of weeks and maybe had like two or three songs. And there was this big house show at a place called The Cliffs, which was like this sort of student accommodation. It wasn't dorms, but it was just these like student houses, these really shitty student houses. But anyway, they had a, a house show at one of them. And um, this other band, Rain on the Parade, played. Uh, so Atari played our set. 
And it was like packed with kids, obviously like free show, nothing else to do in uh, Kutztown, Pennsylvania. And all of a sudden the um, bassist for Rain on the Parade like was in traffic. I couldn't make it on time for his set. So Ronnie from Rain on the Parade was like, hey guys, didn't you start a new band? That new like indie band that you're in? Why don't you guys play a show? And and we're like, uh, we've only, you know, we had like three songs. And also I hadn't told anyone in Atari that I was playing in another band, like, because I was very new. I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. So all of a sudden I just like took off my sweaty t-shirt and put on another one and just started singing and playing in this totally new band. And they're just looking at me like, what the fuck, Andrew? Like <laughs> you're in a totally <laughs> new band and you haven't told us you're playing like this entire set. And I was like, oh yeah, I've been playing with these guys. So yeah, that's kind of how the jazz tune started. Just like trial by fire thrown in at the deep end. So um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, I don't know. I, but yeah, like growing up in New Jersey, it was just really cool because, you know, we had like the beach and uh, pretty decent places to skateboard. And, you know, you can go to New York City on the train. It was like not too, too far. And, you know, my parents would let me go when I was sort of like a young age. But um, it was funny because I remember um, I was skating like this curb at like a Kmart or something like that on like a Friday night at like nine o'clock at night. And all of a sudden this van pulls up and these guys are like, Hey, do you know where Josh Grabell's basement is? You know, we're playing a show there. I was like, oh yeah, I went there once. It's like, go down there and make it right. And then we're like, oh wait, what band are you in? And like, like Snapcase. And uh, (laughs) I had never heard of them before. But um, from then on, I like, you know, obviously like, well, I didn't Google them. However, I found out about them. And then I was like, oh shit, I can't believe like Snapcase just came up to us at a parking lot and asking us for directions. But yeah, it was just um, a lot of cool stuff going on. at like again in, in New Jersey with different house shows and different kids putting on stuff. My friend Tim Morris, um, who passed away, God rest his soul, he used to put on shows um at a place called the Briar Shack and he would have like Channel and Ripping Corpse and Endeavor and like Frail and just like all these really cool bands that when you look back you just think like, man, it was just a really lucky time that I was kind of like knew the people that I knew just through like skateboarding stuff to be knowing about these shows because obviously pre-internet so it was all just like finding a flyer and be like oh next show you know finding one flyer at one show and going to the next one and just you know continuing like that for you know like a years yeah it's funny we had daryl from snapcase on the show and he mentioned i think he mentioned the josh gabriel basement shows which were legendary the tim morris tapes are legendary too i got inspired seeing those accounts on instagram and a bunch of others when i decided to start this up yeah he was awesome man he used to go to every single show he was the guy who would drive us to like to see fugazi for the day he had this huge sort of like i don't know what it was like some sort of like old ass catalog that we could all fit into and um yeah he would just drive anywhere for any show um and he would always bring his little camcorder and he just would sit there like in the he's a really big dude so he you know took a lot to sort of like knock him knock him over so he would just sit there like in the middle of the mosh pit filming all these bands i mean unfortunately the audio isn't great on those but it is really cool to see some of those gigs especially like the josh Gabell ones with like um chorus of disapproval and like these kind of like cool california bands who are on tour and yeah that's a really cool archive that i think his brother started that um they sort of transfer those tapes so you play this show as the jazz tune now this this caught atari completely by surprise they had no idea yeah, because I was like, it's funny because like, um, I, you know, being in a hardcore band, especially a hardcore straight edge band, the fact that I was like not 
I was in a non-hardcore band was like deception, like, <laughs> you know, like how dare you not play music at, you know, 250 beats per minute and, you know what I mean, like not X up. So, I mean, they they weren't like that, but that was just like the, the fear that I had, that if I told my straight edge friends I was in a band that wasn't hardcore or straight edge, they'd just be like, that's it, we're not friends, you know, we're just going to like never talk to you again. Um, but also, like I said, it was, I, I didn't know any of the jazz June guys. Like they all went to school together down in um, Doylestown. Like they all went to high school together. So I had just, I didn't really know them until like the first practice. I kind of met them all. So yeah, it was very new. I just wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. And I had like the sort of hardcore fear in me that, um, <laughs> that uh, you know, so I, I didn't, but you know, it was actually good because I just, you know, sort of like ripped the, the Band-Aid right off with that sort of like three song set that they were at. So was everything cool with Atari after the set? You know what? <laughs> it's funny now because that was a long time ago, but there was like, it wasn't like there was riffs, but there were like a lot of conflicts because Jazz June started playing all the time. Like at some, at one point we had um, like a booking agent who would book us almost every single weekend. And we'd be, she was also booking hot water music. So like, you know, they're cool shows that we wanted to play. And um, so sometimes there were some conflicts and like also not the guys in the, um, in Atari, but like some of the early message boards on <laughs> of like the Lehigh Valley scene would be like, those guys in Jazz June, they're lame. They're not hardcore. They don't, they wear sweaters <laughs> and you know, all this other kind of weird <laughs> stuff that you'd get on like that sort of like black screen with green font uh, message board, uh, <laughs> old school. So yeah, there was um, not exactly the guys in the, the band, but just like the scene, you know, the sort of like hardcore scene got a little bit of a kickback there. Yeah, there was definitely a lot more gatekeeping back in the day, for sure. So when did you part ways with Atari and start focusing on Jazz June full time? I didn't. That was the thing. We we just kept both going for I wanna, a long time because I remember we even played like a sort of quote unquote reunion show after like I had left Kutztown and the jazz tune had stopped playing. So we were just not playing very often. Like we would just play every once in a while, but then we put out a seven inch um, and, and we're on a comp. I think, uh, I can't remember the name of the comp, but that song did really well. And people started to like us. So sort of like maybe like three years into Atari, we started to play like cool. So like hardcore festivals and stuff up in Scranton. And we would play with like fast break and floor punch and open up for sort of like mid-level hardcore bands and stuff like that. So yeah, we kind of kept them both going for a while, but jazz June always took precedence because we would like jump into a tour van every spring, winter, summer break and just play shows the entire time, you know, uh, as far out, as far out West as we could. So, uh, we're definitely doing a lot more than the Tari was. So, oh yeah. So you're pulling double duty the whole time. Wow. That, that sounds like the perfect situation. I would love to be in a hardcore band and a great emo band at the same time. That's the dream. Yeah, I mean, it was funny because, you know, I, we didn't really appreciate it. We saw, <laughs> Brian and I sort of saw Atari as this, like, weight around our neck because we were such good friends with the Atari guys and, like, we'd always skate with them and hang out with them and uh, live with them and stuff like that. But, like, our just our, they were so still into, like, hardcore. And especially because it was, like, that 
88 hardcore revival thing with like again um fast break and floor punch and um and and hands tied and so they were just like super into it um and we were just like not really that into it anymore like if i had been an atari when i was like 17 18 it would be like a dream come true but i was just a little bit sort of over it at that point um and just like a bit snobby about hardcore I hear you. Yeah, I went through that too, where I don't know, I'd make a big statement like, I don't listen to this anymore. I only listen to these (laughs) indie rock bands, or I only listen to emo now. It's just like, I guess everybody goes through that to some degree. Yeah, I mean, obviously now I love all of it. Like, I I, I listen to everything, and like, I and I still try to keep up with like the current hardcore bands as much as I can. And there's some actually, there was there's some pretty good ones in London that I've kind of run up against. But yeah, exactly. It's like at some when I was straight edge and hardcore, it's like I do not listen to anything on a heart on a major label. Like, (laughs) fuck you, Jay Massis and Dinosaur Junior and Sam I Am. You know, like, (laughs) yeah. And then, and then it was like the opposite. Like, I do not listen. I don't care about hard hardcore it's it's boring and lame or whatever but you know it is funny too because the, the the greatest thing is, is that there were hardcore kids who were like you've you know i remember this kid coming up to to me and going like hey so where's derek been my friend and he, i was like uh like what do you mean and he's like oh he hasn't been at any shows lately and he was like well, I, I don't know. He got a job, I guess. And he's like, I thought he said he was hardcore for life. And I was like, uh, did he, <laughs> did he say that? Like, did he, did he say that? Or, you know, so there was that kind of thing. But, um, nowadays or even later on, um, after, you know, emo kind of blew up and got bigger and, uh, all those like hardcore kids came around and they, they would like admit that they loved the jazz dune, even though they'd talk shit about us on message boys. And then they started their own fucking emo band. So it was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> so did you find a lot of resistance in the jazz june did you have trouble at the shows or was it only on message boards that people were talking nonsense no we did get some bad reviews in like um some local zines and stuff like that i think a lot of it was around my singing unfortunately (laughs) um you know i was just i hadn't i wasn't really a singer it was like in the jazz june we had like our first couple practices and it was like okay so who's going to be the singer and we're just all standing there with guitars around our necks and i was like i guess i could try but i don't really sing and then you're like okay cool and then you know because no one else wanted to do it so there was that kind of thing and then obviously it was like oh you're just trying to rip off the promise ring or you know so we so you know it was like it was and, and and again the emo thing was like all immediately a joke like oh you're a fucking emo band so you you suck so yeah there was a bit of it's it's weird you know definitely from like the hardcore punk rock community and then with even within it was just like you're just trying to sound like this band because they're popular and it's like obviously we just wanted to play music and hang out and um have fun and stuff so it it was weird but you know you kind of like once that kind of happens once or twice you just kind of go whatever i don't care and it doesn't bother you anymore so it sounds like things picked up pretty quick. You play this first show. You have Hot Water Music's booking agent. Were you playing a lot of gigs? I mean, that to be fair, that was a couple of years later. But yeah, it did. I guess you're right. It did kind of happen quickly because what happened was we were like the one of the only like emo indie bands, whatever, in the Lehigh Valley. So whenever any band would come through that was of any, you know, any sort of like description of that kind of music, they would just put us on. So we'd open for like at the drive in knapsack mineral, like all these different, like bigger touring acts. And it, it helped us like meet people 
And like, yeah, Hot Water Music guys were so cool. They would just be like, here's our entire book full of contacts. You can just like photocopy it and book your own US tour, you know? Um, and people are really cool. And the guys from Midcars in July who are out, where were they from? Sunny, I can't remember that place, somewhere in the middle of Pennsylvania. They were really cool because they're a bit older and they would help us out with like booking weekend tours together. And yeah, we just kind of like started meet, meeting people. And again, one show led to the next. We'd play a show and they'd ask us to play another show or they'd ask us to come back for a bigger show and stuff like that. And then I don't know how we met Eva from the uh, Fate of Booking um, exactly, but um, yeah, she picked us up and then it was like, yeah, Hot Water Music and some of her other bands that we could go on like these mini weekend tours with and stuff like that. And bear in mind, we're like in school the whole time. So I'm like going to class on a Friday until 10, going back to the house, loading up the van, booking, um, yeah, getting in the car, driving to fucking like Ohio, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and then like playing three shows and driving home sometimes overnight and going to class or like studying on cue cards in the fucking van for a test on Monday morning. So yeah, it was, um, we were just like squeezing it as as many times as, as, as much as we could. That sounds like a pretty fun life. What was your plan? Did you want to do music full time? What were you majoring in in college? What, where were you at at the time? Well, I started off with a political science major because I thought I was going to be like some sort of vegan, um, like activist, sort of like changing the world, um, very idealistic kind of straight edge kid. And then when I got into those courses, like uh, corruption was like taught on the first day. They're like, well, this should happen, but because there's a lot of money and power and, you know, of these big corporations, it doesn't happen. You just kind of have to accept it. And I was like, okay, this is lame. So I, I ended up taking a bunch of English courses because I was into writing, but I didn't want to, I knew I wasn't going to be like a writer or like a novelist or anything. So then I transitioned to like English education and did that, but then I never actually taught. So I, yeah, I have an English education degree, but I never actually taught. I went through my student teaching, but I just, it wasn't, I just didn't um, want, I just wanted to get out of school basically at that point. But you're in this band now, you're playing these excellent gigs. Did you think, man, this is it. I'm going to do this. Not until like, cause I was a super senior. So I went for five years. Um, and, uh, yeah, maybe the last year when, when people actually start, you know, I remember like a sort of turning point for that. Our kind of music was like, we would always play this festival up in, um, Stroudsburg. I can't, it was like a yearly festival and it was always like hardcore bands, but then they started to have like, um, like get up kids play and stuff like that. I remember when get up kids played and someone going like, they just sold like 90 CDs at the merch table. And I was like, holy shit. Um, so yeah, when those things started to happen, I guess we thought, because also the great thing was, is that we're all going to school. So we had all the Christmas summer breaks to tour, but then we all actually graduated the same year. So it was like, okay, let's try this out and, and, you know, see if it could happen. And again, we had a booking agent where at that point we're on initial records who had like, you know, good distribution. They were getting us reviews and, uh, you know, alternative press and like bigger sort of like industry mags and things like that. But, um, but no, not until the very end when we had been together for maybe four years, was it, was it even like considered, you know, before that it's like, you know, it's like, it would be like thinking that Atari was going to be my, full-time job. You know what I mean? Like it just wasn't ever conceivable that that was going to happen. Um, cause it just wasn't a thing until all of a sudden, yeah, some of the bands started to get a bit bigger. And then 
you know, but then when it really started to blow up when like Jimmy Eat World was on the radio and My Chemical Romance, we had pretty much stopped playing and touring at that point because we'd all left school and we had this horrendous opening slot for Elliot for like three months and it just absolutely ground us down to the ground and and yeah we just all like hated each other and like didn't want to play music anymore (laughs) now talk about this tour what what happened why why was it grueling okay so this is not to the fault of any of the people involved i'm not you know but we ended up with a deal where we only made a hundred dollars a night max so if elliot was making Eight thousand pounds dollars a night. We were still making a hundred, so they were like eating oh. sushi and like going around. To- <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> they had like a tr- who, uh, who negotiated this deal? Uh, our dude. So our again, <laughs> I love you, Eva, but and I don't actually know exactly what happened. We were given a contract that we agreed to. And then we showed up at the first show and it had stupid shit on it. Like we want hoagies and Budweiser and like, you know, all this like stuff. So we went up to the first venue. I remember it was at Twisters and we're like, where is our hoagies? Where's our Budweiser? Like <laughs> we've got a contract. <laughs> and the guy was like, I don't have that contract. This is the contract I have that says you get fucking nothing and you're only getting paid a hundred dollars. And yeah, somehow we had agreed to the tour at like an, and Elliot had a certain deal in mind that they were offering to like an opening band that we took, but it ended up being different from what we either understood to be the deal or not. So, um, yeah, we just, but it was like two months. It wasn't like a week. It was like, and, and, and again, we like had just graduated from school. So I had like worked the whole summer, luckily saved up a bunch of cash working at a coffee house. And then, um, so we had some money, but if not, we would just been like, well, we just would have gone home, I guess, but we were able to like pay for it out of our own pockets for this. But the shows are great. You know, I mean, there was like 200 kids at each show and we did sell a bit of merch, but like some kids would go to the show, buy an Elliot pin and, um, hoodie and then go home because they were too young to even be out for the show that night. So yeah, we were just on two totally different levels. Do you hear Elliot nowadays and get like a twitch in your eye remembering uh, only getting $100 on those shows? No, because there was these two guys who were so awesome. There's guy Benny and this guy Digger. And they were like, they were like super Louisville guys. And they were just like, y'all, you know, y'all should just hang out and have fun. And like, you know, like, yeah, we're not getting paid that money. Like, don't worry about money, man. We'll give you some money if you need it. So they really like helped us through and they're really cool. Some of the other guys in Elliot weren't as, uh, they weren't mean and awful, but they were just like, what, we've been through this. You know, we went on a tour with so-and-so and and we're only making so much money and our van broke down. So they were kind of like, listen, this is just you paying your fucking dues. So shut up, you know, suburban white kid and like, uh, you know, be happy (laughs) that you're on tour kind of thing. Tough love. Yeah. Yeah. So the shows must have been great, though. That was Prime Elliot, though. Was this False Cathedrals? Yeah, era? it was the album. Uh, was it on Re- uh, Revelation? I think it was their first album on Rev. And yeah, oh, that one, U.S. Songs. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh no, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was Cathedrals. But at any rate, um, no, it was cool. I mean, you know, I really liked Elliot. I really loved Falling Forward. And was there an Endpoint connection to? I can't remember, but I really liked the sort of like legacy of those bands. And obviously, we were on a Louisville label, so we knew a lot of those guys. Um, but yeah, definitely loved Elliot and loved getting to see them play every night um, and go to, yeah, and we got to play like, 
you know, like the outside room at L, um, Emo's in, in Austin uh, with um, like bigger bands. Oh, the Melvins, you know what I mean? So it was like a, sort of like a little look into some of these, some of these cooler. And we played in like San Diego with Jejun, this big packed out show. So yeah, some of them are really cool, but generally most of the shows were much better attended. Our tours, we would fucking, <laughs> we'd go from like, you know, New Jersey, next show, Chicago, next show, like Wisconsin, you know, these mega drives. And there'd be like four people at each one in the kit. It'd be in some kid's basement. And he'd be like, if you want to make a donation, here's a pot in the corner of the room, chuck a quarter in. You know what I mean? So <laughs> it was, oh, no. <laughs> so it was definitely better. But again, the fact that we are not making much money and just like, it was basically going on gas and we were eating like, um, peanut butter sandwiches every night, but you know, Hey, whatever. I was like 21. Um, and you know, I'm glad to have had the opportunity. It was fun. Yeah. I mean, those memories must be so great touring with Elliot playing with Melvin's and Jejun. That's like, that's like an late nineties, early two thousands dream. Yeah, definitely. And like, again, to see what some of those other, you know, some of those bands went on to do, it's kind of, it's kind of cool. You know, I remember one time, um, the guy from um, Saves the Day, before they were like, I think they had just played a few shows. And I remember his email address was like xxxchrisxxx at Hotmail or something. And I was like, oh, man. <laughs> and of course, I was like, oh, this is some straight edge kid, whatever. But he was like, hey, we're in this band called Saves the Day. We like jazz tune. Do you want to play? And uh, um, But yeah, because he was straight edge, <laughs> I was like, they must suck. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like <laughs> So we're like Oops. Oh cool man I appreciate getting in touch But you know We've got I, I think I would always Just refer them To our booking agent And you know Obviously But um, you know So that was probably A bad move Because obviously They went on to do Huge things um, Jay, I remember we played a uh, Some random show In like The middle of North Carolina With Jimmy Eat World And it was like Us watching them And them watching us You know um, But then obviously They went on to huge thing. So yeah, it was just cool to be there before it all went crazy. Cause to be fair, like when, when, when we had finished our last Elliot tour, we did actually do another jazz June album and we tried to play gigs, but we had also parted ways with our booking agent because of that whole tour. And we could not get a show, man. Like you'd call up Maxwell's or even some of the smaller clubs and it would just be like, no, if you don't have a manager, just like fuck off. We don't care. So yeah, it got um everything kind of went to the next level and we just kind of like didn't quite get to that that place yet. You had difficulty booking gigs back in the day after you parted ways with your booking manager. Yeah, cuz we just didn't have like like um yeah, it was just you didn't have an agent and and we were well, we were purposely trying to play like New York City shows because like Brian was in Brooklyn, Justin and Dan were down in Philly. I was in New Jersey, so we're like, let's just play a bunch of New York City shows. It's kind of instead of like jumping in a car every weekend yeah. and driving 12 hours to play a basement in, you know, uh like Dayton, Ohio. Let's try to play like actual club gigs in New York City, and that that became that became hard for us to do. It is hard. It's still hard. Yeah, I've totally. never played a, like a real club here. No, and um, you know, 
I, I did play a bunch with, I was in a band called this, called Snakes and Music after um, the Jazz June and before I moved to London. Um, and we would play like Knitting Factory, but like the Knitting Factory room that you didn't know existed, it wasn't the main room, it was like the second floor or whatever on a Tuesday at, you know, 1230 at night, you know, and, and you had to like bring 20 people or they would never book you again. So yeah, it's, it's pretty ruthless. Like, unless, unless you're yeah well connected in that scene, then yeah, you're just playing like random places at random times and during the week. So jazz June initially disbanded in 2003. Yes. Yeah. Sounds right. Talk about that. When, how, what was the conversation? Um, you know what, to be totally honest with you, we had like, we had this practice room in, I think it was like in Sayreville because it was between, yeah, again, Brian's in Brooklyn, I'm in New Jersey, the Grosso guys in Philly. And we were like writing our, what would be our last album and, and thinking about the future of the band. And obviously we had that big tour that just went really bad, poorly. So that sort of like being in like the indie band in a van kind of thing, we're just like, well, we can't sell enough tickets to sort of like make that work for us. So it was like, do we go and try to do something totally different, which we kind of did with our last album. We just tried to be a bit more experimental. Like, um, and I think we felt like a lot of the bands at the time, like saves a day. And um, what's that other really huge band from Florida, newfound glory who were getting big. We're like, well, we can't sound like them. We don't really want to. So like our sort of emo scene is going that way where it's more like a much more melodic and much more polished sound for the radio. So we're like, let's go a bit more, you know, we were listening to like can and Radiohead and like, let's do stuff like that. But you know, you can't just switch tracks so quickly and go, we're going to go for one band and you can, but it doesn't mean, you know, it takes a long time to like hone a a different sound. Um, And I think we put out that last album, which I really like, but again, it it, it just didn't really go over and people are just kind of like, eh, you know, what are you doing? And we were just a bit confused. And, you know, it wasn't like we sat down and said, okay, guys, the band's over. Cause we're all still like really good friends. And, you know, to be fair, probably because money and, and success and all those kind of things never got involved, you know, it was always just like a fun thing. Um, so we just like, life got in the way basically. And again, you know, we didn't have like a big opportunity to steal us back to it. So it's just like, we'd book a few shows and then six months would go by and they're like, well, no one really cares. No one's asking us to play any gigs. So, uh, you know, maybe just, you know, and then another six months go by and then it's two years kind of thing. I see. So it just kind of fizzled out. Yeah. But we did play, um, like we played 2006, we got back together and played a reunion show for our uh, roadie, Adam, who had a brain tumor for like a benefit gig. And then we played a couple of shows. But then I moved to London, uh, like around 2006, 2007. And obviously that made it much harder to play. Yeah. Talk about that. When or why did you move to London? Well, so when I was after Kutztown, I... um, I worked at a fucking concrete company in the complaint department, which is the only job I can get considering I had an English education degree, but didn't want to teach. So I, um, yeah, I got this really terrible job. It would be like New Jersey construction workers. Like, where's my fucking concrete, man? It's 30 minutes late. I got this guy's on, we're on a bridge on here, you know? And I would just be like, Oh, I'm sorry. I'll send a customer representative. But like, yeah, um, <laughs> we, yeah. So we got, um, yeah. So I had that terrible job and I was like, okay, 
what the hell am I going to do? Like music hasn't worked out. I've got this degree. I don't want to do anything. I tried to get a bunch of jobs at um, like different uh, record labels in the city. And they were like, yeah, you can work for us for free and work in a bar at night, which is obviously how you get going in that industry. But I was like, oh man, I just went, I spent all this money on like a degree. And now I feel like I could have done that without going to school. I got to do something, you know? Um, so at any rate, I started to go to this recording uh course in Manhattan called the School of Audio Engineering, SAE. Because um, I was like, all right, well, maybe I can get in on the sort of like production engineering side because I was never really techie, but I did start to get like a fondness for sounds and tones and, and all that kind of stuff. And I felt like I could play a few instruments decent, you know. So at any rate, went to that course. Um, and while I was at that course, met a friend of a friend who was... Um, from the UK. She was going to an acting course a couple streets down. So we ended up meeting, uh, hanging out, uh, getting married, and then moving back to London to like be closer to her family. Wow, that's a big move. Yeah. I mean, we're not together anymore. We split up and I've got a totally new uh, partner and uh, and everything. But um, yeah, it, it was really super easy to come over here because like it was pre 9-11 and also pre like 2008 economic crash. So it was, uh, oh no, sorry, it was not too pre 9-11. That's totally wrong. It was pre crash. Um, so it was like, oh yeah, uh, I'll just get a job, whatever. Like I didn't have any prospects or anything, but it was just like, sure, I'll just go over there and I'll apply for a bunch of jobs and I'll get one. And it just didn't, I had no kids or mortgages or anything. So there was really no consequences. And I went to the embassy in New York, in New York, the, like the British embassy in New York. And they were just like, uh, you got 500 bucks. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, you're going to get a job. And like, I'm like, yep. And then it's like, welcome to the UK. It was just so easy because I guess also because we were married for two years, it made it a lot easier because that's kind of the deal. So yeah, it was like, okay, we'll go over. We just got an apartment um, for cheap and just eventually got jobs. But then it was really good because I ended up getting a job then in like the pro audio industry, which I've been in now for like 12, 15 years um, over here. So yeah, career-wise. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah. What are you doing exactly? Well, right now I work in marketing for a company that puts on like we basically rent out PA and and mixing consoles and amps and all that kind of stuff for big festivals like Download and Isle of Wight and um, big tours with like every kind of like big band, everyone from like Michael Bublé to the Idols and stuff. We rent out all the all the PA and uh, yeah live sound package and stuff. We also do all sorts of other stuff, installations and everything from like, you know, boardrooms to death metal tours and stuff like that. But it's all mostly audio. How many years were you in the UK? I've been here for, I'm like 14 years. You're in the UK still? Yeah. Oh shit, that's where you are right right, now? You're there right now? Yeah. Get out. You're kidding me. (laughs) Yeah, it's fucking fucking midnight, man. You're keeping me up on a Monday night. Here I am thinking you live in the Northeast somewhere. This is no. crazy. I really thought you lived in Jersey. I'm so sorry, Andrew. <laughs> That's okay. I don't mind. I knew I, I, I've, I've been uh, yeah preparing myself. I've been getting 10 minutes extra sleep for the last two weeks just to make up for tonight. <laughs> Andrew, we appreciate you staying up so late to come on our show. Now, um, wow. So, so you're still there. Do you miss the U.S. at all? Do you ever come back? Yeah, man, I miss it all the time. Um, I really miss all my friends and family and stuff because, you know, 
people, you know, obviously if you watch the news, it seems like America is just a complete shit show. Um, same with the, the UK, you know, like politically and all the other things, that, especially with Trump and stuff. But, um, so, but I, you know, it's just, I really just miss like um, American people and my friends. It's such like a unique, you know, um, sense of humor and outlook on life that like, there's great things about the UK and I love the people here just as much, but yeah, I definitely miss it. But I come over all the time cause my mom's still down in Maryland. So I'll come over, hang out with her, um, go up to New York to see some friends, still see all the jazz June guys in Pennsylvania and stuff. So I can like, yeah, keep in touch with them and meet their kids and watch them grow up and stuff like that. So I've still, I mean, before pre pandemic, I was going back sometimes once a year, sometimes more. Cause also I was working for this microphone company called sure who um, are based out in Chicago. So I'd go to Chicago and, and hang out there for a while and then go to New Jersey and, and yeah, definitely back when the jazz June put out our sort of like last album, I was going over all the time for shows and, and sometimes festivals and stuff. Yeah. Talk about when the jazz June reunited, it was in 2014. You put out the great LP after the earthquake. How did it happen? Talk about it. So, um, we were, I think Brian was just like, look, it's been like however many years we haven't done anything. There's this thing called the internet. We can like, write songs and share them with each other and we can like do everything we would do if we were in the same room but from our houses so like let's try it out you know life's too short let's kind of do it kind of thing so i was like okay and i had written um a couple songs so i just yeah i had all the equipment so i just started sending brian tracks and he would put a guitar on it and then justin had like this funny it's funny listening to some of the recordings because it was like a electronic drum set. So there's just like crazy drum sounds um, that ended up being like, like it was just, you know, just demo stuff. And yeah, it just ended up being like easier than we imagined it to be. And we just started like cranking out tunes. And then we got to the point where I think I, yeah, again, because I was visiting again, this is pre kids. So I was going over, I was had a little more flexibility. I could go over, like see my mom for a week and then hang out with, jazz tune guys play and rehearse and uh, i guess yeah so we got to a point where we wanted to record an ep so we had a facebook page actually yeah and i guess i should mention also at the same time we we're kind of like writing these songs we had started a facebook page and like it started to get like a couple thousand followers and people were like hey i never saw you guys or i did see you guys and you should play again or you know like really love the medicine and i wish we could see you and it's just like a lot of sort of chatter and we would post stuff online and people would be commenting so it's like oh there's some you know people kind of remember us kind of thing that's that's sweet um and then we posted on the page saying hey we're about to record some songs um, does anyone know like a good recording studio? So they had recommended a place in Pennsylvania, uh, in Philadelphia. I can't remember the name of it, but it's the guy that is in Hopalong. He's like the bassist. It's his studio. And, uh, but so when we posted that top shelf was like, you guys are recording some songs. We'll, we'll put them out. And we're like, okay, we got, <laughs> I guess we got a record deal. <laughs> so, nice. so yeah, it was just really sort of, cool and and easy and effortless um you know we weren't trying really hard to like you know get signed again but because we had had some songs and we had this like cool facebook page with all these people kind of like cheering us on it was like all right yeah we'll go and record some songs and hey now we've got a person to put them out and then and then top shelf um 
you know, they'd put us on like their CMJ shows. We opened up for Braid at St. Vitus, which is like such a cool show. We played that place, uh, Baby's All Right, which with the uh, beach slang. Um, and, and, and then we, and then we got our, one of our friends from, um, back in the day, she, awesome girl, Courtney, she, um, she was down in Austin and she booked us on like a show that it was like, it was like fun, fun, fun fest, but it was the night before. And it was at this awesome venue in Austin and it was into it over and mineral. And we got to play right in the middle of, of those two. And they like, she she got like this beer company to shiner to fly us over because it was their party. It was just like all these really cool things were just happening. We weren't like making a lot of money, but it was like all these opportunities were happening. So that was just like sort of surreal. Because then also again, like if we back in the day, if we had played even Philadelphia on our own, there'd maybe be like twenty five people there, and all of a sudden we could play like uh, and maybe like one hundred and fifty people would show up. So so that was just really cool. That must be incredible. Since the band breaks up, the internet and social media blows up. All these years go by, and you find all these new fans, and it's like, hey, record at the studio. And a, and a label's like, hey, we'll put out the record. And then you're you're on these legendary shows. If You must have been, I would have been high out of my mind. Like, wow, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. Yeah, man, I was absolutely fucking buzzing about it. It was just like, you know, and then it'd be like, Hey, like NPR is going to debut your, your new single. And it's just like, what is going on? You know, <laughs> like I think, you know, and, and, and I'm talking about these things because I'm just as much of a fan of all these things as well, you know, and I think there was like a, a, a whatever fourth, fifth wave of emo going on. So we just kind of got swept up along at that. And, um, we were, you know, we just like by pro- again, Braid was playing and, um, some of the other band, like Mineral got back together and we just got lumped in with those bands. All, but despite the fact that at the time when Mineral and Braid was playing, they were much bigger than us. But I think it was like the sort of, and then like the younger journalists who were writing for, you know, they didn't know that they just thought, Oh, Braid, Jazz, Jude, Mineral, you know? And so they would like review our albums and interview us because, so yeah, we just kind of, kind of get just got brought swept through that kind of whole wave and got included in in lots of different sort of festivals and things like that because people just assume like we were just as big but we definitely weren't you know at the time in 2016 rolling stone magazine (laughs) said that the medicine your album for the jazz june was number 33 on the 40 greatest emo albums of all time now that must have felt good right yes and i'm not discrediting this but jonah bear was Part, part of that. And he's a huge Jazz June fan. So, <laughs> you know, I don't know if that was like a, a sample, you know, if that was an accurate sample of actually, you know, all the, <laughs> the emo fans and they putting in their votes. It was definitely him pushing us to the fore. But yes, that was definitely an amazing thing to kind of like come across, you know. So that was definitely cool. I would be taking full credit for it. I would be like, they they sampled an emo kid across the entire United States, and uh, we are in. That's it. Yes. Accept it. One from the Midwest, you know, one from California. Yeah. <laughs> one from New York City. No, yeah. I, I mean, again, um, you know, it's incredibly sort of like proud of that um, that sort of ranking or whatever. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was just a really cool time, and all these things were just happening. 
And then, you know, but the thing is, um, again, like kind of like how it started, it was like, and you know, this is the great thing about the jazz June and, and like being such good friends with those guys is that we kind of just got to a point where like, man, we've done this and we've done that, but like, oh man, taking off another weekend's going to be rough with the kids and blah, blah, blah. And, and yeah, it kind of just fizzles out again because we'd get opportunities to do things and people be like, oh, I'd love to, but it's just like a bit much this month, you know? You know, and, and then again, and then after the album came out, I had my daughter, Annie, and then all of a sudden my whole life changed, you know, <laughs> I wasn't able to just jump on a plane and go play a festival in Texas. But you have a new band now, Post Skeleton, yes? That's right. Yeah. So we started actually playing um, pre-pandemic. We played for about two years, like, but like very infrequently, you know, we'd have like one rehearsal every couple of months. And then we actually finally got up to the point where we had like a full set of songs. So we're like, okay, let's play some gigs. So we played two songs and then the whole world shut down. And then now, yeah, we're just kind of like getting back into it. We've got a, a first gig actually this Thursday since you know whatever 2019 or whatever 2020 oh that's awesome and these are these are i assume people you know locally in the uk yeah so um one of the guys is um like a good friend of my my partner jen they've known each other from back in manchester and um he he plays bass so yeah we were just friends for like five or six years and then he finally moved down to london and was like let's start a band and then he's like a professor at a university of kent so one of his professor friends happened to be a drummer who um was like yeah i'd never met him before but he lived like in london and we're in all to the he was kind of like hanging, he was like in with those like propaganda guys because he's Canadian. So like, yeah, so we immediately met and just had like a million references of like bands from back in the day, hardcore and punk rock and everything. So, so yeah, it just kind of like fit together perfectly. He unfortunately moved back to the States to get a job at Princeton University. la da You know, I don't know, you know, what's more promising, a, a career at uh, Princeton <laughs> University or being in the post-skeleton? I mean, you make the decision, but he... Uh, <laughs> He made his, but yeah, no, so he got this awesome job, but now we've got a new drummer called Dom, who again is another, another professor. Um, so yeah, I just kind of sit in, um, band practice quietly as they talk about different, in, uh, post-colonial literature references throughout time and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> what modality are you speaking in? Like, oh, fuck. Exactly. I don't know. I don't, I don't get what you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. So basically, if you want to join the band, you've got to be a professor. Yeah, you've got to have a PhD, and uh, and you have to be published. That's actually what we uh, that's what we require. And again, <laughs> it's like Snapcase. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like every, oh yeah. Everybody we, has like a PhD. Ev- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or an MBA. All those guys. All those guys went on to get PhDs and like crazy stuff. Yeah, it's funny because then yeah, it was because uh, I was listening to the one from that guy in Drowning. Is it Drowning Man? Yeah. yeah. Yes. He's like a lawyer. Yeah, there's some of those guys who, um, you know, where you're like in those bands have gone on to to do, yeah, pretty crazy careers, which is really cool. Well, post skeleton, you've got new music coming out, right? That's right. So, guys at Friend Club Records, uh, we met through this really awesome guy Tim, who um, he used. I don't know if he still does or not, but he used to. I met him when the Jazz Dune did like our last album because he used to write for New Noise magazine, and um, we just kept in touch. And then 
he was always just like, Hey man, are you doing any new music? And when I finally had some post skeleton songs ready, he was like, Oh, I'll do some free press for you. Um, cause he's got like, he's got this, um, awesome PR company called sweet cheetah. And they, he does it like for free, but basically he makes the, the bands like donate to charities, but he does all this work for people. Like in addition to his day, full-time day job and having a kid. And, um, so he's just been like championing us along for for forever, like for a couple of years now. He's just like, go record, like play some gigs uh, to pay for the recordings, you know, get the recordings done. I'll send them around to my friends, you know, the, I know all these labels and stuff. So yeah, so he introduced us to Friend Club and um, they were just like super awesome from the beginning. One of the guys um, used to work at Victory and uh, yeah, so he, he was aware of the Jazz June and, and Rob who runs it, just a really cool guy and Rise does the um, all the artwork. Just, yeah, we just all sort of like had a Zoom call and it was just like, okay, this is, we're like all on the same page and yeah, they were just like, cool, let's do a, let's do an EP in June. So yeah, we've been kind of, the recordings again, we're like done sort of, um, it's great because now with technology, you know, we used to pay, I don't know, what, $1,000 a day maybe to record at a decent recording studio. I don't know what it costs now, but um, yeah, we could we could basically record all the tracks in a rehearsal studio because obviously I have access to like decent mics through work. Just but recording them, you know, into like a garage band through like a little interface. And then we send them to this guy, Bob Cooper. He's like a fucking wizard, man. He makes it sound like you were in like Abbey Road, like through with his sort of like <laughs> studio gear and, and um, plugins and stuff. So yeah, it's really cool because it's like an affordable way to make a really professional sounding recording. Nice. Yeah, I think the new single will be coming out the same week of this podcast. So folks, look for that. And we can hear your music on all the regular streaming services. Yes. Yeah, so we've got um, the song "The Loudest" is um, the first sort of single that we we uh, recorded. Uh, we actually put that out like right as the pandemic kind of hit, so that's been out for a while. But that's on Spotify and Bandcamp, and we've got a Instagram page, and I think that's it. But yeah, we've, we're covering all the bases, and and also like I promote all the stuff that we're doing through the Jazz June Facebook page too. And it must be nice to still be involved in music because you're married now, you've got kids, you're busy. I, I myself have gone many years between bands or I thought it was going to be over and I was never going to play music again. So when it happens again or I'm putting a band together again, even if it doesn't pan out, I'm just happy to be playing. Do you feel the same way? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, especially like being locked inside for months and then, you know, some of the first things that actually open we're like rehearsal studios. So, and you know, free vaccine, you could be like, all right, I'm going to a enclosed room with two other people that I know really well. And, uh, you know, so we're actually able to like practice and just play and just like get out of the house and, and write music, which is just like absolutely life-saving for like your mental health. So, you know, that, that was just super great to have that. Cause yeah, I mean, you know, it wasn't like we're starting a band. It was like going back to playing like hey we've let's play those eight songs we haven't played for a year it was just so it's just been so much fun and then again you know hooking up with the um friend club record people who are just so super supportive and cool and and you know they'll they'll help they'll do so much you know they do so much for us like just promoting stuff and um you know working with us and stuff so 
Um, and it's just fun to, yeah, play music with your friends, drink a few beers and, and hang out. Absolutely. And how did you fare during the pandemic? Like, I would say it really changed my life a lot. This podcast really kicked off during the pandemic and became weekly, so it's kind of my focus of everything right now. I became much more online and spend all my time on YouTube and Twitch now. I barely watch movies anymore. So uh, a lot of my life changed. How about you? I don't know how much time you have for my answer here, but um, yeah, the pandemic was crazy. Like, So my dad passed away a few months into it, not from COVID, but he just was, he was like 80 and old. So that was like really challenging dealing with that, like, you know, being obviously in the state of the world and then losing my, losing my pop, not being able to like fly over for the, you know, to even see him when he was sick and stuff like that. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. And, but I mean, the only upside to it was like through that process of like grieving and I actually was able to get some bereavement counseling free through the, like the NHS, which is awesome because it would just kind of like helps you grieve and figure out like, you know, pull apart like your relationship with the person, like the good things and the bad things and figure out like, you know, what you're kind of like harboring um, inside of you and, and the way that affects you. And at the same time, we were lucky enough to have a friend of a friend who had just like taken this, um, parent coaching course, which I didn't even know existed as a thing, but it's like when I first knew that my partner was pregnant, if someone said there's a parent coaching course, I've been like, sign me the fuck up. Cause I have no idea what I'm doing, you know? <laughs> so, um, but it was cool. Cause like I was kind of doing the same two things. So that whole thing was like, you know, I don't know. I don't want to bore your listeners. Who no, no, this is good stuff. Keep going. Keep going. But, um, you know, the whole sort of like thing about gentle parenting. So, through that. And then I also, st- I got really into yoga. Like I had been, I had done it years ago because my, my ex-wife was actually a yoga teacher, but, and she taught me all the basics. But when the pandemic happened, I was like, oh, I need to do something to keep myself active. So I'll start doing yoga in, in the house. So I started reading a bunch of books about yoga and like, um, there's this one called Be Here Now by Ram Dass. And so all at the same time, I'm kind of like doing all these things that I never had done in my so like 44 years. It's like really contemplating like why I made all the decisions I made and were they the decisions that I made or were they things that other people like sort of like influenced me? And I remember having this moment being like, have I made all the wrong choices in my life? You know, <laughs> <laughs> like if I had had this information earlier, would have I made different decisions, you know, you know, I, I don't, I, I don't know if I have or not. I have to live with this life anyway, and it's pretty good. So I can't really complain, but yeah, it did really make me like, kind of like go inside myself and figure out a lot of things that, um, you know, like I would always, you know, I think like anyone who's in the creative arts or probably even into punk rock, there's probably like a bit of depression or anxiety or something like something driving you away from like the sort of rah, rah, of, uh, especially in America, the, like the rah rah roar of the of the football team to like be in the sort of outskirts yep. and stuff, and just like you know why why do I think that way? And also like the sort of way that I l- kind of looked at myself and the opinions that I had of myself were they things that I thought? Were they things that other people thought? So it was kind of a I don't know what the word is, but like a cleansing kind of experience coming from like really bad situation, but having that sort of like counseling available. I mean, I was lucky enough to get it for free and just be in the right place at the right time. But, you know, I know, you know, I, 
I know you guys talk about like the different addictions that you guys have gone through and things like that. And um, I think it's really cool that you're talking about it because I think there's probably a lot of people out there who just are in a cycle and whether they're like, obviously, you know, not everyone is a, is a um, blackout drunk alcoholic, but like, you know, you, you could just be sort of in a cycle of depression or a cycle of like drinking a few beers every night or, you know, and not really knowing why and, and just having like sort of bad habits and, and things that aren't great for your mental health. And it's like, it's good to kind of like, yeah, it's hard to pull yourself out of it if you don't realize that um, there's like help out there or there's other people going through the same thing. Yeah, I think it's really great and interesting to hear your process because you're dealing with different stuff. But I love that you took the steps to deal with everything and everything just kind of fell into place. And that's the thing with whatever anybody is going through, you know, you might realize it or you might not even realize that you're in it. You know, I was in this cycle of hell for so long, but I just I was in such denial. I was just like, oh, like this is just what I do or so. To actually ask for the help and get it is the key. And whatever that is, whatever it may be for uh, for whatever you're going through. And I don't know, for me, that was the scariest thing in the world because I, I'm just so scared of other people and, and I hate asking for things. I hate asking for help even yeah, yeah. now. But to, to be able to push through and do that and deal with whatever you're going through, I mean, I, I really hope everybody can because, uh, you know, I'm I'm living a great life right now. It sounds like you are too, Andrew. Yeah. And, you know, once you start to like go through some of these processes, which you might just like think is going to be the worst possible thing to like talk about harm, you know, talk about like uh, uncomfortable experiences with a stranger in a room or whatever it ends up being, you know, because even so there's even some like really good books. It's like, yeah, until you sort of take yourself out of those just like lanes that you're in it's like, how would you know that there's a different way of thinking about something because you've been taught your whole life to think about something in a certain way. And that could be putting you down like a sort of like negative path that you just don't even realize it. And once you kind of get yourself out of that mindset, you're like, it is really liberating. You just feel like a lot of freedom from some of the things that just like really may have, you know, held you back or made you depressed or, I mean, you know, it's not like all of a sudden I feel like I'm never depressed anymore and anxiety is a thing of the past. Like obviously not, but you know, (laughs) I feel like a bit, you know, I've come over, come over a hill a bit and, uh, and, and things a little bit better, but you know, maybe now I'm going to write shitty music. It's going to be all happy and positive. (laughs) (laughs) I keep thinking about like uh, a parenting class. Cause like you said, you went to a, like, you know, when you found out you were going to be a father, like, there's so many things that I was unprepared for as a parent oh, that yeah, man. I wish I, somebody had really kind of, I keep like, and I know this is not like the most appropriate thing, but I keep going back to that clip from the Simpsons where like Marge and Homer get in trouble for being neglectful parents. And it's like people milk can go sour, put it in the refrigerator or barring that a cool wet sack. And it's like, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> Cletus like writes it down like fuck yeah like, cool wet sack I'm like, but I really wish someone had told me like you know when you're a parent and they're telling you like don't shake the baby you're like yeah I got that like they're never really tell you like there's gonna be times where this baby is screaming in your face for yeah. 12 hours and your first instinct as a real person is to be like I'm going to shake the fucking shit out of this kid. Like, like I, I don't know what to do. I'm panicked. Yeah. And like, I, yeah. it's four o'clock in the morning and I have to be at work at six. 
I really wish there was someone that had sat me down and been like, this is what this is going to be like. It's going to seem insurmountable at the moment. However, the best thing you can do, and this is something that I, I wish someone had told me, like, you know, I came home for with twins. My wife was in intensive care for almost three weeks when the girls Damn. were born. And so I came home with two babies by myself when they were seven days old. Um, but I really had a moment by myself where like my mom, thank God, my mother came over and she was like with me and she was like, what's the matter? I'm like, mommy, I'm so frustrated. I don't, she goes, take a breath. They're screaming. They're going to continue screaming. If you can hear them screaming, you're fine. Yeah. Take a seat, sit down, get a glass of water and just chill for a second. Take some deep breaths. Because really, like, you don't understand that type of pressure until you're in that moment. And you go, oh, my God. Like, I, you, you know, they, they tell you all that stuff. Like, don't freak out. Don't do this. And it's like, but in the moment, like, you're you're so panicked and you're so, like, there's all these other pressures that are going on. Like, I have to go to work. I have this. I have the other thing. And it's like, you don't know how to respond. And it, once you have someone that, you know, kind of puts their hand on your shoulder and goes, it's okay. Everyone goes through this. Calm down. Take a moment. Like, it's okay to sit down. It's okay to let them cry. Like, clearing your mind in those moments is not only paramount, but it's like, it's the only thing you need to think about. There's everything else is on the back burner. Yeah. It's just like remembering to breathe, remembering to like regulate your body that you can end up, you know, helping the situation much more than if you're totally panicked. And, you know, the the sort of parent coaching thing that we went through um, was, you know, it was like, you know, no one wants to fuck their kids up, but you just know you're just going to repeat all the bad things, you know, when you're in a stressful situation and like, you know, saying the things that like your stupid things your dad used to say to you or whatever. Uh, but the whole, the really cool thing about that was that um, it's really about like uh, observing the motivations behind the things that you're doing and it's like why do you get annoyed when they whine or why do you when they you know like these kind of things like why do you yell at them when they're you know late or won't get out of bed or whatever it is and you just kind of think like well why do i care and it's like oh because my parents really wanted me to get up early every you know weekend and go out and cut the lawn and all these things it's like but do i think that or is that just something that was passed down to me that i don't think and once you start to break those things down, it's like, do I need to be yelling at them about everything? Like, obviously you have to keep them safe and not like killing themselves with it. Some, at some points, you know, they seem destined to just like jump off of the couch face first onto the ground <laughs> and stuff. But like, you know, aside from those things, it's like, and then once you start to like, look at those things of like, okay, why, what, what is motivating me? It kind of like turns, you kind of look at to yourself and go like, why do I think this about life and money and work and jobs? It's like, do I think that? Or is that what someone told me to think? Um, and, you know, it just gives you a better perspective on like, you know, cause there's that whole other thing. I think it's like, I don't know if it's a CBT um, theory about like, there's the, you know, you've got in, in your sort of psyche or whatever, you've got the, the child, the adult and the, um, and the parent, and, you know, and the, the child is the one that's scared all the time and needs help and isn't sure. Then the adult is like the sort of one that's like criticizing you all the time. You're like, you shouldn't be doing that. Not the adult, sorry. The parent is the one that's like critical. And then the adult is like you, that's you. You're like, okay, 
the situation, if I take fear and criticism out of it, what decision would I make? And you're always trying to, you're, you're always going to balance in between those three sort of like personas, but you're, you know, ideally you want to be on the adult side where you're like, I'm a grown ass man. I know what the fuck I'm doing. I'm making this decision because I have thought about it and this is the right thing to do. And I'm not going to let anyone else tell me difference because I'm going to do it this way. Um, so yeah, it just kind of chills you the fuck out really. And like gives you confidence and the decisions you're making with your own life and with your children, because there is so much pressure from grandparents and family to be like, "Hmm, they're crying at the restaurant." You, you know, that was if not not a, I wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't have happened on my watch. And you're like, "Jesus Christ!" I'm just gonna. So what am I gonna do? Scream at the kid to stop crying? Is that gonna help? You know, so it gets dense. I'm glad I'm not there yet, Andrew. <laughs> I do not have any kids, and uh, it sounds like you guys deal with a lot. Well, the thing <laughs> is, though, it, you can, you know, <laughs> it's all about, like, reparenting yourself. You know what I mean? It's, even if you have kids Yeah, I not, do that now, and I have no kids. <laughs> exactly. It's just, like, going back and be like, how do I wish I would have been reacted to in this situation? Um, right. And how should I treat myself? And you should treat yourself with respect and... And, you know, and kindness. And so, yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's recap, gentlemen. Here's what we want to do. Number one, if you have somehow never heard the jazz tune, you should really do that. I mean, come on. Number 33 of the 40 greatest emo albums of all time. Do you dispute that, Andrew? Do you think it should be higher in the list? (laughs) No, I I love 33 is perfect. That's fine. I'm fine with that. That's like a good look. Isn't that like a good luck number two, 33? Uh, yeah, why not? I'm just making that up. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so we want to listen to the jazz tune. We have to, we need to, we've got older stuff. We've got the newer LP after the earthquake. Do you think you'll, do you think you guys will ever play again? I hope so. It's hard. Cause, um, you know, the, the other thing we found is writing an album online. Like, again, we're talking about how great it is to get into a room and play music and drink beers with your friends. But, you know, it's less motivating to say, hey, Dan, sit in front of your computer uh, on a weeknight with your bass and write to this electronic drum track, you know? (laughs) Yeah, So exactly. And, you know, again, because I was going back and forth more, um, it it made more sense. But it doesn't mean to say it can't happen. It's just a matter of, like, us being a bit more motivated. And then, of course, we have to check out Andrew's current band, Post Skeleton. I love what you guys are doing. I checked out a lot of it recently, and there's a new single coming out, which I think will be coming out the same week of this show. So we've got to listen to that, right, Andrew? Yeah, SIGs. It's not about cigarettes, but um, it's, uh, yeah, it, it's it's a feel-good tune. So, uh, yeah, put it in your ear holes. Andrew, we want to thank you for staying up so late over there in the UK to uh, speak with us on the show tonight. You know, you've created so much music that we love, that a lot of people love, and we really just want to say thank you. So uh, I know that Rolling Stone has said that the medicine is number 33, um, but I will say they love those that make the music is without a doubt in my top three records of all time. It is such a great record. And there's just so many tracks on there that just mean so much to me. And it reminds me of being 15 again and skateboarding with my friends and just just loving music. It, it just, it, it encapsulates everything of my youth that I really love. And Andrew, I truly appreciate you for making that. Yeah. Thanks, man. That's really sweet. And, and, and to the listeners, you need to give these guys a five-star review, write a fucking, 
Where to fucking comment or whatever they ask you to do. Stop for reloading. It doesn't take a lot of time. Get on there and do it. I'll I'll write the, the damn thing for you. You can copy and paste it on there. These guys are doing this every single week. They've got so many cool interviews, and it's really personable. They're talking about mental health issues, addiction problems, and not just talking about, you know, silly stuff. So support these guys. And uh, thanks so much for having me. It's been awesome. And hopefully we can meet in person one day soon. I hope so. Thank you so much, Andrew. You heard it, folks. Direct from Andrew Lowe himself. (laughs) Five stars. Thank you. There you have it, folks. Andrew Lowe. That was a wonderful conversation. We really covered it all. The Jazz June, excellent band. Post Skeleton, excellent band. Looking forward to hearing the new music. Mental health, we love talking about that. A lot of the Jazz June history that I wasn't aware of. Great stuff. Really, really personable. I love the fact that he was in Atari. <laughs> that like kind of like walking between two worlds of like hardcore and emo and you know, that kind of thing was like, yeah, I had no idea about that. I, I feel like I had an inkling of it because like, I remember there was a crossover between the two bands and yeah, we were talking about that before the show. That was a weird connection where you went to that show and your sister and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I still kind of, I can kind of put my finger on like, I, I think if they all look 19, I'd be able to pick out a handful of them. <laughs> Like, I, I remember what they look like, but yeah, that was like a very formative moment in like me becoming who I am today of like looking at skateboarding, looking at hardcore and seeing people that were doing it and making like live music and being like, wow, like I want to be a part of this. Like, this is a cool thing that resonates with me and makes sense. Like, I, I like this enough to that I want to put effort into it. Yeah, it was really great to talk to him. So thank you again, Andrew. And folks, make sure you check out the new post-skeleton single, SIGS. It's out there. You heard a clip of it right before Andrew's interview. You want it, you need it, you've got it. Now, Tommy, how are we doing? Uh, You know, sneak preview, I'm having a horrible week. Um, But you go first. Uh, This has been weird. Uh, I've had a hard time. I'll go into some work stuff, which I know isn't the most interesting things in the world, but, uh, I'll just let you know that as of right now, I've refused the new position that was offered to me. Whoa. What is going on? So they redid the scat, like the, all of the salary scales for teachers have been redone. Um, with the idea being that there is a teacher shortage in the United States, and they want to actively recruit people and want to recruit them based on the highest salaries. That also means you have to increase the salaries of that everyone that works there. So me being one of the people that has, you know, 13 plus years of experience, I'm at the uh, upper echelon in terms of pay scale. Uh, therefore, it actually behooves me to be a teacher instead of taking this new job. Um, They've said they're going to come back with a new offer. Uh, However, this new offer involves me losing my vacation with my children. So 
I'm going to go ahead right now and say, I'm not taking it unless you say I can go down the shore with my kids. So I love the hard bargaining that is going on here. This is great. I, I say this in that I have spoken to people who are, um, I work with a woman who is an economist for a number of years and her words were, they need you more, much, much more than you need them. And I was like, wow. Okay. And she's like, so you are the person with leverage. Make sure you use it. However, don't over leverage this and, and end up like screwing yourself. She goes, however, you're screwing yourself into a very lucrative position either way. She's like, so, yeah. so it, even if you lose, you win it precisely. But, uh, just me personally, uh, that weighs really heavy on me. Like I, this hurts me in a weird way. Like I don't sleep as well at night. Uh, I think about it constantly. I drive to work in the morning and have conversations with myself <laughs> like yeah. out loud that I normally wouldn't have where I'm normally just like, you know, let me put on Spotify and listen to some jazz June. And I don't. And, uh, I think that peace of mind is kind of gone for the time being. And that kind of breaks my heart. But on the positive, the girls have finished a thousand piece Lego puzzle. And <laughs> we're fucking psyched about it. And we bought some mod. Uh, it's called Mod Podge. It's like the clear glue you can put on top. Evie is in the midst of putting the second coat on upstairs, which is great because I'm glad I'm downstairs in the basement. It smells like death. And I'm so excited because they're excited about just everything. Like, and when I said, you know, they overheard, uh, their mom and I, you know, like Kelly and I were talking about the beach and they were just like, Oh my gosh, that's right. And they keep a calendar in their room of how long it is to the beach, which also, um, this new position would mean I can't go to the beach with them for two weeks. So, um, yeah, I got a real, uh, you know, damned if you do damned, if you don't kind of thing going on right now. So the hurt that you described when you're driving to work, is that personal disappointment because you were thought you were getting this big new position and now you are giving it up in service of your family, among other things? That's a really good question. Uh, I think a lot of it comes down to, I have anxiety a lot about the conversations because in my head, I'm perfect. Like in my head, I can argue this out very, very clearly, but it's like, the arguments you have in the shower with someone you had, like, you know, someone you had an argument 10 years ago with and you play it out when you know you're washing your hair. Well, if I had hair, I'd wash it. But you know, while you're shaving your head, I, I get anxious about that. And it, it it affects a lot of parts of my life that I don't like it to affect because I, I like that, that homeostasis. Like I like that stability and this is bringing instability and I don't like it. So yeah, I, 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 to answer your original question, I think a lot of this comes down to it's not just not having that position, it's the anxiety around the conversations around that position. Yeah, and I get it. I totally get it. If there's any disruption to my work life, I am in complete disarray. And it can affect the vibe. It can affect the overall vibe at work if they're like, hey, we're we're going out of our way to get this position for you. And if you're like, oh, I don't want it, you know, 
you, you read these stories all the time. Wait, this is probably going to make you more. Uh, no, no, go because it, it really is. This is what I've been thinking: is that they're going to go with they're going to go with another candidate. Yeah, that person's going to be successful, and I'm going to be pissed the whole time they're successful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like something like that, or it's like, oh, you take this position, or you're out of here. It's like, or, like you hear about that in the corporate world, which I don't think will happen to you. But I will say this right now. Uh, the bonus to be a math teacher at my school used to be about $3,000, like the sign-on mm-hmm. bonus. Um, it is now $7,000. <laughs> they have <laughs> more than doubled it. So uh, I'm not worried about that because I know that there is a scarcity issue. Like they they can't find the people, so I'm not worried about that. However, I am worried about the like the in-talk, like the people, like uh, yes. the whispering, like that. That fucking bugs. That really bugs me. And I know that like you deal with that corporate world. Like, how do you deal with that? Like as someone that works in the corporate world, I'm completely disengaged. <laughs> <laughs> so you just think, so how do you ignore it? Like even do like, let me back up. I'm not completely disengaged. That's, that's not totally true. I'm not involved in too much because I, I just, I guess I just don't care that much about work. You know, like my de- my department is really supportive of me and everything is usually very corporate, you know, do this, okay, follow up on this, okay. So there's not much gossip. I'm not involved in a lot of personal conversations and gossip. There was one really weird situation where a former boss of mine called me up very inappropriately and said like, you know, you messed this up and the VP of sales and this person are are talking about it and it makes you look bad. So I'm just telling you. And that really pissed me off. Number one, because that was a completely inappropriate phone call from someone I don't even report to. And number two, well, I guess that's it. Just, you know, there is no number two. Uh, It just doesn't happen that often. I think that's one of the huge benefits of working remotely is that you are not involved in the day-to-day like water cooler type shit. Not at all. Yeah. So Tommy is not taking the job. That's big news. Tommy, I'm sure you're going to do just fine, though. And then you get to go on your vacation at least, right? As of right now. It's important to the kids. As of right now, I'm 100% going. However, if they throw a boatload of money at me, (laughs) we might might be having a different conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, if they they come back with an incredible offer, you got to go with that. Now, go ahead. Ask. Ask. How are you doing? Me? Well, oh, not good. (laughs) Not good. I messed up something at work. I priced something wrong, and we have to take the hit for it. And I am in a complete tailspin over it. And I do not like messing up, especially at work, because now I'm paranoid that I will be fired and all this stuff, and the microscope will be on us. So I need to be really careful moving forward. How does that make you feel like, let's just put it this way. How is it affecting you? Yeah, like I just described. I'm like, oh man, everyone hates me now. I'm paranoid. I'm going to get fired. That's where that's where my head goes. Okay. I, I, my thing is like, it, it always goes to sleep. Like if I'm not sleeping well, I'm not doing well. Oh, I'll sleep fine, but I'll just be a mess all day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's I, I'm sure it will be fine. And I just need to be really careful moving forward. Yeah, so I, that's about it. That's about it. So with our remaining few minutes, we have a couple new reviews. Are you ready for this? Let's go. Folks, keep the reviews coming. We need them. We need Apple Podcast reviews, and we need Spotify reviews. So here is our first review from Solid Ecans. 
Five stars. Tommy is the pit shitter. <laughs> I know it for a fact. I only listen to every episode in hopes of a slip up on his part so I can pin it on him. And of course, Solid E. Kans is talking about the turnstile mosh pit crap incident. And he is claiming boldly that Tommy is the pit shitter. Your comments, Tommy. One, I have never seen turnstile. <laughs> Two, Keith screenshotted this to me and I have been howling by myself like whenever i'm having like a moment at work where like stuff's not really good i will literally pull up that and cackle like by myself people like people have asked me like what are you laughing about and in my head i'm going i could explain this to him but it's gonna take so long to explain why i'm laughing so hard and then i'll have to explain what the podcast is and who turnstile is i'm like nope never mind not happening like it really makes it make me laugh in terms of like that someone has taken this so far and to put that on Spotify. So I'm very happy about it. There you go. And we've got one more review from K19148. New scene, five stars. Great show with great hosts. Very engaging content, even when I don't know the artists being interviewed. I love that because in my mind, Tommy, I am so good at interviewing people that people want to hear it even if they don't know the band. What do you think of that? I think it's accurate. <laughs> because there, I mean, I, I hope. Yeah, no, I think there's been bands on that I have not been super familiar with and like listened to them before and been like, okay, good music, not ex- exactly my cup of tea, not something I would go to, but I, I love what they're doing and I love the fact that they're coming in and talk about it. But the fact that it keeps people engaged is that's the huge part of this is like, exposing people to music that they may potentially have never heard. And again, it comes back to the idea of that. We really want to make sure people understand that this is a community and we are part of something bigger. We really, we love what we do. We love this and we love exposing new music. We love talking to people that have made great music and we love talking about the process. So I'm glad someone said that. There you go. And that's a great way to end it. Folks, we're out of time. We're back next week with a new episode and a new guest. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time. Yeah!